Uh, but thanks for being here today, and it's my privilege to be back in the preaching slot for a couple weeks with you, and I was thankful for Pastor Tyler and Pastor Brent and Pastor Mitch bringing God's Word the last several weeks, and uh, we are blessed to have communicators who understand uh, the weight of God's Word and who open it regularly and expose its truth. As I come back to you in this role today, um, I am more and more convinced and, and in my belief that the inerrant Word of God and a high view of God's uh, sovereignty will move us forward as a church. May we continue to hold God as high and holy and stand firm on His Word. And I want you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 25. The plan was to get through chapter 25 and 26 today. But as the Spirit has led me, I'm going to try to break that up into two messages. And today I want to preach a message to you uh, that I've titled, Gospel Citizens in a Sinful Nation. Acts chapter 25, we see Paul continuing to deal with the governing authorities of his day. All Paul was trying to do was advance the gospel message of Jesus Christ, but the societal norms of wicked kings and agenda-driven kingdoms saw him as a threat, though he had done nothing wrong. And I don't know about you, um, but sometimes I get discouraged by the state of the nation that I'm living in. I was recently in Washington, D.C. My wife and I had a chance to be there a couple times this year. And uh, as a believer, there's a tension when I walk around our nation's capital. I know that my allegiance is to Christ. I know that Christ has called me out of the kingdoms of this world so that I might follow him. I'm very thankful as I walk around for the history of America, for those who gave up their life so that we could have the freedoms that we have, so that we could stand here today and lift high the name of Jesus. But I am saddened by the exaltation of dark things and wicked things and people standing on the streets rioting and celebrating things that have nothing to do with what God has called us to in his word. America is a nation that has afforded us many blessings and opportunities, but one that continually claims to be under God, and yet our actions continue to prove otherwise. Much of what I see in our nation is an exaltation of self in God's rightful place. We say things like, what I want, I can have because I'm an American. We say things like, my body, my choice. We tell people, go and find your truth, as if your truth matters and God's truth doesn't matter. And it would be hard for anyone um, to go anywhere right now in our culture and not notice that this month has been deemed Pride Month. And uh, I've talked to several people in our church I've talked to people as I've gotten off the platform. People have asked questions. People have texted me things that you're dealing with. And um, everywhere you go right now, we're being told celebrate pride. And, and uh, rainbow flags are being flown all over the place. And hashtag pride month and hashtag celebrate pride is there. And there's a tension, right, for us as the believer. Uh, what are we to do? How are we to act in this um, world that we're living in. We think of verses like pride comes before a fall and God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And yet how do I reconcile all of these things that culture is shouting at me? And here's the truth. Culture is most powerful when it's most normal, not when it's the loudest. And yet it continues to get louder and louder, doesn't it? And so how do we as 
believers engage in a sinful nation that seems to be slowly drifting more and more away from God's word. Or maybe you've absolutely stressed yourself out worrying about the culture that surrounds you and you've forgotten your place in this world as an agent of reconciliation. Someone that God has called out of this world but sent back into this world to be salt and light in the world. Or perhaps you've gotten so focused on the culture that is right in front of you that you've forgotten how evil nations have been throughout history and how faithful God has been to preserve his church. All throughout history, nations have been evil, wicked kings have been put into office, um, One thing has prevailed, that is Christ and his church. And it is my prayer that the Spirit would help us answer some of our questions and concerns today as we look to his word. And as the Spirit was putting some of these things on my heart, I was encouraged as I got into Acts chapter 25, a chapter that you could read and say, why did Dr. Luke choose to put that there? And yet when we dig into the realities of what Paul was facing I think it helps us with our situation today. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read all of Acts chapter 25, and then we're going to go um, in, in today. And I want you to just uh, to allow the Spirit of God to move. But let's read all of Acts chapter 25 and get the context um, that Paul was dealing with. Interesting to note, so Paul last week we saw was before Felix. There's two years that separate Acts chapter 24 and 25. Paul is, they didn't know what to do with him put him in prison unlawfully for two years until somebody else could come and deal with him, and that's where we are in Acts chapter 25. Let's read together. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul uh, that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning to ambush to kill him on the way. So the Jews, the high priest, the ones supposed to be upholding the law, they're like, hey, Festus, release Paul, send him to Jerusalem, we'll kill him on the road. Uh, Always planning. Verse 4, Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them, Not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews had come down from Jerusalem, stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him, and they could not prove. Paul argued his defense. It's okay to stand up for yourself when you're being falsely accused. Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. Verse 9. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. Do your job, Festus. Uh, To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their... Um, to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered to Caesar, you have appealed, and to Caesar you shall go. So Paul appeals to their Roman law. Don't release me to the Jews. They're certainly just going to ambush me on the road. I'll appeal to Caesar if you're not going to see that I've done nothing wrong. 
uh, verse 13. Now, when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There's a man left prisoner by Felix, and when I, ha- I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody and the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I'd like to hear the man for myself. Tomorrow, he said, you will hear him. So King Agrippa's like, I've heard of this Paul I'd love to hear his case. And Festus is like, all right, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get a thing together. So verse 23, on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. Great way to describe these leaders. And they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of justice. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me both in Jerusalem and here shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So Paul, I mean, he goes... Uh, time and time and time and time again, proves his innocence. They can't find anything wrong. He appeals uh, to their governance. I'll go to Caesar. And he can't, Festus can't even find a reason to send him to Caesar. He's just trying to find a reasonable way to send him on to Caesar. Now, in Acts chapter 26, it continues with Paul's incredible response before the massive party there to condemn him. And next week, we will see how the believers should handle themselves under pressure and even under false accusation. But as Paul responds to the accusations, we see um, that his mission stays the same. He wants nothing to be known among him except for Christ and him crucified. But let's take a step back and get an understanding of the political scene of the day that Paul was working with in Acts chapter 25. Um, In just Acts chapter 25, we're introduced to these several layers of political power and governance. Each of them were riddled with corruption and gross immorality. So we were first introduced to the Roman governor, uh, Felix, last week, Festus this week. Festus succeeds Felix, who Pastor Tyler told you about. Felix, as governor, divorced his wife, stole another man's wife, who was Drusilla. Uh, Felix was so ruthless and evil that he actually got fired and sent back to Rome, considering that Nero was the governor Um, If you get fired under Nero's rule, you must have been a pretty unreasonable man. That was Felix. 
Well, Festus comes and takes over for Felix. Festus was a coward of a leader. Portius Festus is described in history as fair and reasonable, but as we've seen in Acts chapter 25, he simply wasn't able to judge in a just way. Not even on his first day in office could he make a just rule. Festus is essentially what Pontius Pilate was to Jesus. He was more concerned with his political stance among the Jews than with executing what is right and just in the world. And that's essentially why Paul appeals uh, to Caesar. Festus wasn't going to make a fair decision based on the truth, so Paul appealed to a higher power, which ultimately got him to Rome And we've talked about that. Paul wanted to get to Rome. Paul wanted to share the gospel in Rome. I'm sure he didn't want to go there in chains. And yet this was the way that God was going to get him to Rome. We were also, in verse 2, introduced to the chief priests. Uh, We see these Jewish leaders continuing to come up. The high priests, the men of the Sanhedrin. Uh, Another authority of Paul's political reality was the Sanhedrin, which consisted of the high priests and 70 elders. And we've already seen their injustice and their hypocrisy as those who are meant to uphold the law. We've seen Jesus falsely accused by them. We've seen Peter arrested, accused, and beaten by them for sharing the gospel. We've seen Stephen stoned and killed by the Pharisees. We've seen Paul constantly trying to be killed by them. And these are the religious leaders of the day, the people trying to uphold the law, the people trying to point you to the things of God And uh, they were murderous, adulterous thieves. They would line their pockets uh, with the tithes and offerings that went to the temple. They made up ridiculous laws only to justify their own sinful situations. And so, you know, the law says don't commit adultery. Uh, These Pharisees would commit adultery. And then they made up laws that said you could divorce your wife even if she burnt the toast. That was like a real thing in the Jewish day. And for people who were supposed to uphold the Ten Commandments, they sure did a lot of murdering. And they sure did a lot of, um, you know, trying to create plans to get the Apostle Paul. And in Paul's situation, like Jesus, they were so hypocritical that they'd pawn their victims off to the Roman government and relentlessly pressure them to do their dirty work. And you remember the Jewish leader standing before Pontius Pilate, crucify him, crucify him, king of the Jews. And that's essentially the same pressure that they're putting on Festus on day one. Now the third layer that we're introduced to in Acts chapter 25 is Herod Agrippa II. Pastor Tyler unpacked a little bit of the Herodian line of leadership last week, but just as a reminder, these were real leaders for a long time in the days of Jesus and Paul. Uh, A Herod uh, wasn't in for four years, and then he got voted out. Uh, The Herods dominated kingship in Judea. They were subject to Rome, but they had enough power, wealth, and pride to do some seriously horrendous things. Herod the Great, the grandfather, ten wives, killed all of the babies two and under when Jesus was born. Pretty wicked. Herod Agrippa's father uh, is the Herod that we saw eaten by worms in Acts chapter 12, an egomaniac. Uh, The Herodian line of leadership can be summed up by murder, evil, and gross sexual immorality. And the same is true with King Agrippa II, who we're introduced to in Acts chapter 25. We were also introduced to Bernice, uh, King Agrippa II shows up on the scene with Bernice. Bernice uh, happened to be his sister whom he was in a love relationship with. 
Uh, so here's King Agrippa married to his sister in a love relationship with his sister. That was not something uh, that would have been socially accepted in the day. But the further you get away from God's law and design, uh, the, the stranger everything starts to get. And you see that happening in Acts chapter 25. With all these upstanding choices of leaders that Paul has to work with, he decides to take his chance by appealing to the Caesar of the day. Now, the Caesar of the day was Nero. Uh, he's the most infamous of Roman emperors, certainly not one for, known for his moral rule. We've talked about Nero when we went through 2 Timothy, but just for a reminder, Nero uh, grew up racing his chariots through the streets of Rome. He would run people over for fun. He was a spoiled brat uh, growing up, and uh, Nero was in an adulterous relationship with a woman who didn't like his mother, so he killed his mother. Uh, Nero eventually killed his father, because he wanted his father's reign. Happy Father's Day. Um, Nero kicked his pregnant wife in the stomach so hard that he killed her and his baby. Nero tried to marry his sister who refused, so he had her killed. Nero killed anyone who posed a threat on his political reign. Nero set Rome on fire, blamed it on the Christians. Uh, he made Christianity illegal. He would feed Christians to bears and lions for fun. He would burn Christians at the stake to provide light for his garden parties. And this was the emperor of the day. Uh, this was the emperor that Paul appeals to go and be judged by. I'll take my chances with him because... Festus and King Herod, they're not doing their job, and so to Caesar I go. Some of us need to be thankful for the situations that we live in. Don't we complain so often about our reality, and we get so caught up complaining about the leaders in our country, and look at the reality that Paul was living in. Paul was living in an evil nation. Paul had to be discouraged about the state of his country and the reality of his leaders, Paul had to look at the actions of these different layers of political power and shake his head in disgust. But it was in the same time period, in the midst of this era that Paul wrote in Romans 13, 1 through 2, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. How could Paul write such a thing in the midst of the political injustice that he was facing, in the midst of such immoral, evil governance? He was in jail for two years. The man could have came out raging against these unlawful kings, calling them out, and yet he's respectful Yet he's kind. We'll see next week that he even invites them, tries to persuade them to follow Jesus Christ. The reason Paul could write that in Romans is because of the statement that he said in 13 verse 1. For there is no authority except from God. This statement in Romans 13 1 shows where Paul's allegiance lied. It was not in the state. It was not in his heritage uh, it was not in his people or his leaders. Paul's allegiance was to the God of glory because of the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross in his life. And he had such a high view of God that no governing authority, no political agenda, no cultural immorality could deter him from his mission as a gospel citizen in a sinful nation. 
And in Acts chapter 25, we see Paul, after two years of unlawful imprisonment, remaining patient, respectful, and subject to these leaders who certainly didn't deserve it. Yet Paul had a high view of God. He believed in the sovereignty of God. Paul believed in God's providence. Paul trusted God so much that he understood that in all things, God was working out his grace and his judgment in the world simultaneously. Paul knew that all things work together for the good of those who love Christ and have been called according to his purpose. Paul believed what he wrote in Romans chapter 8. He was sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation would be able to separate him from the love of God in Christ Jesus his Lord. Paul trusted in Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. And he turns it wherever he will. Every king. No power except for what God permits. Paul knew the truth of Daniel 4.17. That the most high rules the kingdom of men. And he gives it to whom he will. And so here's Paul under this unjust leadership. And in verse eight, he argues his defense. He doesn't just roll over and die. He says, I didn't do anything wrong. What they're accusing me of, I did not do. So he argues his defense in verse eight. Uh, Paul appealed to the law of the day by requesting judgment from Caesar in verse 10. Uh, Paul went before a party of pompous leaders And in chapter 26, he speaks with grace, with persuasion, with invitation and confidence in one unchanging truth and message worth standing for, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Luke gives us this entire scene in Acts 25 and 26 showing us what the gospel citizen's response to corruption in a sinful nation Paul exemplifies a Christian's response to corrupt leaders. Paul is really undeterred by their wickedness. He doesn't call them out for their immorality. He doesn't disrespect them to their face. He doesn't cause an uproar. Luke highlights a reality that has been true for all of eternity for us. Political corruption is the norm. Political corruption has been the norm uh, from the time that King Saul took over for the people of Israel. There will never be and there never has been a perfect political system. Some have been better than others, but on their best day, every leader falls short of the glory of God. So our need for God never changes. It's just sometimes we are more aware of it as a people. But the believer takes heart in Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah, by the way, uh, was living in a wicked generation and a political reign written years Uh, before Jesus and Paul were ever on the scene, and Jesus had not yet come, but Isaiah faithfully declared, as it were already true in Isaiah chapter 9, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government, And of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. That is our king. 
That is my king. That's where my hope and allegiance resides when the kingdom of darkness seems to be taking ground. But listen to this. We see the same political wickedness happening in Isaiah's day as it was in Paul's day and as it is in our day. And I want you to see what Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 5. Listen to this. It's on the screen. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. Hang on right there for a second. So that's saying, woe to those who are pulling sin toward them. Woe to those who latch on to sin and, and pull it and, and, and desire it and want it so bad that their life begins to revolve around it. And then Isaiah goes on. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Doesn't that just hit the nail on the head concerning what you see in our nation today? We're living in a nation where there is uproar and division over simple truths. Things that we used to call good are now evil, and evil things are becoming good. You see it all over the world, all over the news. There's an uproar over simple truths. Is it right to murder the baby that God put inside the mother's womb? Those are real questions that we are asking. Should children's parents be able to lead their children in the discussion of God-given gender? Real discussion. Our nation is normalizing sex changes and peddling a message that says, be proud of your sexual identity when God wants to help you with your sexual identity. And every person in this room is sexually broken. We desperately need Christ to reform our sexual desires to what he has said in his word. But what I want you to see uh, today is that the corruption you see in the world is not unique to you. Sometimes we feel alone. Sometimes we feel like, how can it be getting so bad? And the truth is, it's always been this bad. And Christ has carried his people through. Christ has given us the hope of the gospel. It's not unique to you. And as sin in America gets louder... We're seeing the results that follow sons and daughters of disobedience who follow the course of this world. And get this, Scripture says, such were some of you. Such were some of you. I once walked in darkness, but now I walk in light. So rather than being surprised at the wicked confusion of our nation and generation, we should be desperate for God to move among the lost as we remember our own sinfulness apart from Christ. Where you sit as a believer today is not a result of your impeccable obedience to God. It's certainly not a result of you being a good person, certainly not a result of you being a good American. It is a result of the Spirit of God within you. It is a result of the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. His spirit has graciously and mercifully collided with you and your rock-hard heart and shown you your need for a Savior. If you, are not, if you have not called upon the name of the Lord to be saved 
and to be your king. My encouragement is to do it today. Don't put it off. Bow to the God of glory. Bow to the king of glory. Bow to God, the creator. Make Jesus Lord of your life because he alone is your hope of salvation and eternal life. But we cannot expect the world to live as if they know God. And that's where we can get, go wrong as believers at times. Should we expect more from our leaders? Absolutely. Um, should we expect more from our country? Maybe. Uh, uh, but what we do expect from men and women who do what is right in their own eyes. What do you expect from men and women who do what is right in your own, their own eyes? We cannot expect lost people to live out the convictions that we have felt or that God has placed inside of us. The Spirit of God has enlightened his word to us. And so for us to force those things onto the world, for us to expect America to be uh, something that it can't be apart from the Spirit of God is wrong on our part as the believer. Those who are governed, governed by the lust of the eyes, the, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. They will never be able to execute justice and God's righteousness in the world. Paul writes in Romans 1.21 that although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. They knew God. They claimed to know God, but they didn't honor him as God. That's a dangerous place to be. That's a warning for all of us here today. Because you're here, I assume that you claim to know God. Do you honor him as God? Do you honor the God of glory as creator, as high and holy? Do you have a high view of the God who created you and sits on his throne? America is a nation that has continually claimed to be under God, a nation that continually claims to be under God, and yet we do not honor him as God, and we're seeing the same pattern that took place in Paul's political reality. Romans 1, 26 through 28 goes on to say this, For this reason, because they didn't honor God as God and they claimed to know God, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, he gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Ding, ding, ding. Paul's reality was the same as our reality. Isaiah's reality was the same as our reality. When we choose to build our life on God as holy creator and have a high view of what he has said in, our wor in his word, it brings healing, it brings life, it brings joy. But when we do what is right in our own eyes, we become fools and we become confused. And God says that he is not the father, the author of confusion. Now I realize uh, this morning that I am talking to a large room full of a lot of different thoughts and opinions. And I hope what you're hearing today are God's thoughts from his word and not my own. My thoughts, your thoughts uh, mean nothing 
and, and yet the world is trying to build a case for everything right now on their own thoughts. Um, we have to have a month and a holiday for everything so nobody's offended anymore. <laughs> and, and we laugh, but there are, there are, are hurting people in the room who are, are, are stuck and lost in these things. And, and I want to have compassion. I, 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 I um, am frustrated at times, and sometimes I don't know what to do because I want to be like Christ. Uh, I am not here um, for all those who are put together. I am here for the broken and for the hurting, and um, God loves you so much if you step foot into this church. And uh, in a church this size, I know there are people here today who are hurting because of a few things. Um, You may be here and hurting because of the actions of people who call themselves Christians, but they've been anything but loving, kind, respectful, and gracious when it comes to your current reality. You might be here today, and you're taking a chance, stepping foot into a church. And if you were to be honest, if you could be honest, you would say, you know what? Uh, my brokenness is a reality. And I'm very aware that I am sexually broken or I'm trying to figure things out. I am absolutely confused because of what I hear in this place and then what I hear outside in the world being celebrated. And those two things seem to be totally different, and I'm trying to figure it out. And I don't need Christians always telling me I'm wrong. I don't need Christians always trying to change me. I need Christians who are trying to love me with the love that Jesus Christ has had for me. Shame on us for when we are known uh, by what we're against rather than what we are for. We should be for the people of God. We should be for the gospel of Jesus Christ, the hope of Jesus Christ. You may be hurting today because you've tried everything the world is telling you is right, good, and true, and it still left you empty, unsatisfied, and angry. Listen, the world is going to continue to push things that will never leave you satisfied. Continue to push things that will never bring you hope. It's only with Jesus that we find new life. It's only with Jesus that we find healing, that we find hope, that we find wholeness. Doing life without Jesus leads to destruction. You may be hurting because you are absolutely confused and aware of your brokenness, and you are looking for answers concerning your sexuality, your feelings, or the abuse that you faced. Any abuse towards you is not the heart of God. Uh, That is wicked, that is evil. That is demonic. God is a God of love. Uh, God wants to heal you. God wants to make you whole. God gave up his only son for you. And I'm sorry for when the sinfulness of man has brought abuse into your life and things that shouldn't be. And your humility is seen today. If you're here and you're struggling with anything that this world is celebrating... Uh, Your humility is seen just in stepping foot into this place. And James says that God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. I see your humility in stepping foot into a place like this when you don't have it all together. And God wants to draw near to you uh, so that he can heal you, so that he can make you whole, so that he can have compassion on you, so that he can bear with you, so that he can walk with you and know you. But I also know that there are a lot of believers here today, and you're just discouraged with what you see in our nation. And um, I know that there are people here today who are worried for their kids. And uh, all week long, uh, we had a room full of 450 kids 
being pointed to Jesus Christ, worshiping Jesus Christ. We, I care about your kids. I do. Um, as elders and pastors, we prayed for your kids a couple weeks ago. And um, it saddens me what our kids are facing and what people who are supposed to be being leaders in their life are, are doing and peddling and pushing. And uh, we have to hold fast to the word of God. A couple of people said, are you going to preach a Father's Day message? And uh, I said, you want a Father's Day message? King Agrippa was a terrible father. <laughs> and uh, Festus, horrible father. Nero, terrible father. And we need fathers to step up in our households. We need fathers to lead our children in the fear and discipline of the Lord. We need fathers who will take responsibility for their actions and who will be providers in their home and who will be examples of what it means to live like Christ and to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ in their home. We need spiritual fathers who will step up in the church and who will disciple younger men who didn't have fathers in their house who pointed them to Jesus. We need spiritual fathers to raise up and to care about the next generation as Christ moves his church forward. You might be angry at the lies. You might be distraught as you try to navigate your own conscience and convictions in a world that is going against them. So what are we to do as believers? I want to give you three easy points as we close. My hope is to pray as we leave together. Number one, be known by what you're for not what you're against. As Paul stands before these wicked kings and rulers, he isn't there because of his activism or against the sin of the day. He stands before them because of his unwavering belief in Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. This is your message as a believer. This is your hope. And this is the only truth that can bring healing and restoration to the lost. We are ambassadors of reconciliation. What have we been saved for? That's a great question as believers in our day. Uh, you have not been saved for escapism. You can't escape this culture. You can't escape the realities of our day just like a fish can't escape water, okay? Uh, you are in it. And so don't hide yourself away. Don't hide your light under a basket like the old song says when we sang when we were a kid. Get out in the world. Uh, you weren't saved for escapism, but you certainly weren't saved for accommodation, we don't just accept what the culture is giving. We don't just begin to architect our life around the evolving societal norms. And some of you are frustrated because that's what you see happening in your workplaces or that's what you see happening in your community. You weren't saved to escape. You weren't saved to accommodate. You have been saved for restoration. Just as Jesus came into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save, we have been called out of our darkness into his marvelous light so that we could proclaim Jesus to the lost. And that's what Paul's doing. He's proclaiming the hope of Jesus. He's persuading wicked kings that Christ beat death and you don't have to die in your sin. He's not trying to change them because only the Spirit of God can do that. And so he gives the only message that can change, that allows the Spirit of God to intersect the heart of the believer or the unbeliever. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 that you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Some of us could step up our saltiness in the world, but the opposite is also true. Some of you are way too salty. 
I went to uh, Portillo's the other day. You know what I did not do? I did not get those great crinkle fries and dump 17 packets of salt on them. That'd be disgusting. That'd be repulsing. Salt is meant to season. Salt is meant to make it taste better. Salt is meant to intrigue. And you see that in Paul. Uh, These kings couldn't find anything wrong with him, but they were super intrigued by him. Uh, They wanted to know his message. King Agrippa's like, I'll I'll hear him. And then they can't find anything wrong, but they heard the gospel. And I'm sure that even though they went on in their wickedness, they probably went to sleep some nights wondering, I wonder if what Paul said is true. That's how you should be. Uh, You should intrigue unbelievers. You should intrigue those in your workplace who are wrestling with their identity or wrestling with the things that the world is elevating. Uh, You should be speaking uh, with the hope of the gospel on your lips in a kind way, in a gracious way, in a way of truth and grace. What are you for? You are for people, not people who have it all together, but people who are hurting, broken, and lost. You should be known by your love, John 13, 35, Jesus said, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And you should be known by the good news of Jesus Christ. The news of Jesus should be readily available on your lips, and you should be speaking it to everyone that you come in contact with. The second thing that I'll give you is this. Be unwavering in biblical conviction and gracious in application. Don't be unwavering in your conviction. Be unwavering in biblical conviction. And be humble enough to hear people uh, offer something that you might get wrong. Sometimes that's where we get it wrong. Build your convictions on the word of God. Don't go astray from them. Long obedience in the right direction will cause unbelievers to turn to you when they need someone who seems to have something they don't. Live out your convictions unashamedly. In the world, Colossians 3, 5 through 10 says this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Get this, the wrath of God is coming toward all of those things that you see in your world, the things that are being elevated. The wrath of God is coming. You are not the judge. God is the judge. And so we have to work at putting those things to death in our life and standing on righteousness. And if you say, well, I got it down with that list, Paul gives you another list. He says, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. As believers, we live by the standards of the word of God unwaveringly unwaveringly and we have a fear of the highness and holiness of God but while we stand on truth we always speak the truth in love let's be known by that in this community Uh, we speak as a means of hope and grace we temper our disgust towards sin with a love for the human soul that only Christ can set free you got to work on that temper your disgust toward the sin that you see Uh, with the hope of the gospel that has saved your life when you once walked in darkness. Now, number three, be unceasingly and fervently devoted to prayer. That's the believer. Unceasingly and fervently devoted to to prayer. We've seen that Paul was all in for the glory of Christ, even in the midst of these unbelievers, uh, these wicked kings, 
He stands up for righteousness. It was in this day that Paul wrote 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 8. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayer, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger and quarreling. The state of our nation does not have to be a source of quarreling and anger for us. The state of our nation should remind us that the gospel is my only hope of salvation. The state of our nation right now uh, should remind you that while you were an enemy of God, Christ died for you. And the current reality, the current state of our nation in America should ignite you to pray. And here's how we're going to close. I'm a little over time. We're going to take five minutes together and we're going to pray in this room. And so uh, why don't you stand to your feet with me? And there's four prayer points on the screen that I'll give you. Lord, would you draw President Joe Biden and his administration to yourself so that you fill in the blank? Father, let us live as agents of restoration in a land that continues to exalt darkness so that blank. Spirit, open blind eyes to see that Jesus is their only hope of healing and wholeness. And number four, Christ, have mercy because as a nation we've blank. Listen, you're gospel citizens. Don't pray Republican Democratic prayers right now. All right? Lean heavy into the gospel of Jesus Christ that has changed your life. Um, and let's take the realities that we're living in, take the things that you're facing each and every week, and let's point our attention and our affections towards Jesus Christ, the only hope of salvation in the world. Okay, can we do that? Break up in groups of like five to six quietly and quickly. No introductions. Let's just start to pray together, and I'll close us in just a moment. All right, let's pray. come as a a people today, a people that you have called for yourself, for your glory. We do not live this life for our own glory. And so, Lord, we say not to us, not to us, O Lord, but to your name belongs the glory. May we decrease that you might increase in our lives. Would you receive the rightful praise as you sit on your rightful throne, exercising justice, exercising mercy, exercising compassion, in the world. And Lord, we look forward as the people of God to the day when you will come again and when you will draw us home. And Lord, when you will 
um, judge the living and the dead and those who have been atoned for by Jesus Christ, those who have called upon the name of Jesus, those who believe in their heart that Christ died for their sins and that God raised him from the dead will be saved. And Lord, we take heart in the fact that this world um, pales in comparison to what you are building for us in the future. And so, Lord, we look forward. Would you give us a heavenly mindset as the people of God? But, Lord, in these days, would you help us to redeem the days, for the days are evil? Would you help us to hold on to the truth of your word? God, would you, uh, by the power of your spirit, continually convict us and continually open opportunities for us to speak the truth of God's word in love? Would you help us to live out our convictions that are built in the word of God? Would you help us to live out righteousness so that the unrighteous, even when they're having a bad day, they might say, you know what, that person seems to always have some sort of hope and I'm gonna go ask him um, why. And Lord, would that lead to gospel conversations? But in these days, Lord, would you help us to stay anchored in the truth of your word. Help us not to go to the right or to the left. And so much is trying to draw us that way as believers who feel the tension of a world that desperately needs Jesus and a home in heaven that you are preparing. Lord, would you help us to remain on the narrow road? Would you help us to walk in step with you? Would your word be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path? Lord, would you bring salvation to our homes? God, would you open the heart of the children who were here all week long, the children that fill our homes, um, the grandchildren that fill homes. Lord, would you just uh, bring their hearts to life with the spirit of God and the gospel? Would you raise up a generation that will stand for righteousness, O God? Would you lead us in our conversations and in our um, discouragement and in our questions regarding education and how best to lead our families and all of these different things, Lord, that um, come to us? Would you help us to hold fast to the truth that Jesus Christ is on his throne, that Jesus Christ is in control, and that Jesus Christ came to seek and to save the lost? Would you put us on that mission with you as well, starting in our homes, starting in our hearts, and branching out from there? Lord, we love you. We give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for coming to church today. Our pastors, elders will be down at the front. Would love to talk with you. Um, if you have questions or just need prayer, we're here. Okay? Thanks so much. You are loved.